Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. Your stories are some of the best we do here on this show. And today we bring you the story of Tom Ryan, a 95-year-old listener of our show on KABC in Los Angeles. Tom had an unusual upbringing. He grew up in Long Island, New York, living behind a funeral parlor run by his family. And he wrote a book about it entitled Love in the Ashes. Today, he brings us a story you're going to have to hear to believe. It's all about love, old-fashioned values, and, well, breaking the law. Here's Tom. I slipped the ring on her finger, said I do and thought it was forever. Boy, was I wrong. So I've joined the shuffling line of millions of lonely people wondering where it all went wrong. What do you do with 15 years of memories? It is reassuring, however, to know that there are couples who make it through 40 or 50 years of marriage. Of course, they are usually as astonished as anyone else that they made it. That look of surprise in their newspaper anniversary pictures isn't an accident. I even know of a couple who made it that long without being married. It started in those lean depression days of the late 30s in my small New England hometown, where any woman who dyed her hair or plucked her eyebrows was snickered at, and divorce was something for movie stars. Dr. Joe was the town doctor, a quiet, mumbling man who made house calls at any hour of the day or night. He brought our family through all sorts of medical crises. He was devoted Catholic and he had a wife and two kids. He was so lost in his work, however, that his wife finally skipped off with a touring actor and even took the kids with her. Dr. Joe only worked harder after that. When I passed the bar exam in the 50s, He toyed with the idea of turning over years of unpaid bills to me for collection. But he never had the heart to do it. He was too nice. Dr. Joe met Clara Jensen at church social functions. Clara's husband had died in a plane crash a few years earlier. They became bridge partners and shared a basket at church outings, and they fell totally in love. According to my mother, who with her brother Jim ran a family funeral home a block away from the church and was a close friend of both, said they made great efforts to get a church annulment of his first marriage so that they could marry. But in those days, the church was very rigid. Years drifted by, but they never gave up hope. 
I lost track of them after having moved to the West Coast, but my 90-year-old mother sometimes mentioned them in our weekly phone conversations. During my last trip home, chatting over our usual cup of tea at her old kitchen table, I asked Mom about Dr. Joe and Clara. She didn't answer. Instead, she rose and hovered over the tea kettle on the stove, pretending to be busy. She said, talking to the tea kettle, I've done something very wrong. Judge O'Sullivan just called to tell me about it. She hesitated and then turning to me with eyes blazing and a smile of satisfaction set deep in her cheeks and I am so happy that I did it. What? I said, not quite sure of what I had heard. What's the joke, Helen Murphy? No joke, she started to sniffle. I stood up and embraced the lumpy little figure I had loved all my life, kissing her incredibly soft, freckled cheek. Hey, you've got a lawyer son. Don't worry, I can spring any woman who still doesn't eat meat on Friday and hasn't missed daily mass in years, unless you've committed mass murder. She shook her head as she dabbed at her eyes and nose with a tissue, waving away my attempt at humor. Have some more tea, she said, as she refilled our cups. I waited until she was ready to talk, and then it came spilling out. You asked about Dr. Joe and Clara. Oh, dear. I thought I had told you on the phone. Told me what? Dr. Joe died a few months ago. I think you were in Europe. He was raking leaves in his garden. The newspaper delivery boy found him. Oh, no. Was Clara with him? No, she was at her own place. She still had her own place? Didn't they live together? No, of course not, Mike. My God, they went together for 30 or 40 years. Didn't they sleep? She shook her head. They were very close, but they were also good Catholics. And when we come back, this unique voice and a listener to Our American Stories, a listener in Los Angeles on our affiliate there, KABC. And we're listening to Tom Ryan talking about the story of Dr. Joe and Clara Benson. Tom had moved out to the West Coast. His mom was still back on the East Coast, out on Long Island, and catching up on the news of this couple that he looked up to and admired. Another great listener's story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with Our American Stories, and this one is from a listener, Tom Ryan, a 95-year-old listener of our show on KABC in Los Angeles. And Tom grew up at a funeral parlor run by his family in Long Island, moved to L.A., but there was this one couple he always thought about and admired, and that's Joe and Clara. He was having a conversation with his mom when we last left off, and let's pick it up right here. People had standards in those days, not like today. All those years, unbelievable, I muttered. They always thought they would marry, but the diocese was so strict, so strict. She shook her head. How's she taking it? I asked. Tears started to flow again as she said with a sob, that's the other sad news. Clara passed away just last week. Remember I told you last year that she was fighting cancer. Dr. Joe was doing all he could for her, but then he went. I stared at the bottom of my teacup. That's so sad, both of them. So you had them waked out in front within a few months of each other? She nodded. A voice dropped off as she said, that's what I have to tell you. I broke the law. I did something I shouldn't have. But I feel so glad I did. Seeing the confused look on my face, she continued, Dr. Joe donated his vital organs to science. His two children finally turned up and requested that his remains be cremated. Their mother had recently died, they said. As usual, the crematorium returned Dr. Joe's ashes to us, and I stored them out in the hall closet. I nodded as I recalled the hall closet from childhood. Stacks of canister of ashes had lined the shelves of the closet for years. Many were never claimed by the families who either moved away or didn't want to come in and pay the funeral bill. Many of the paper name tags had fallen off. Sometimes before air conditioning, those with no name tags were used to prop open the front doors on hot summer nights at crowded wakes. I always smiled when I realized that unbeknownst to anyone else, the unclaimed ashes of a big muck-a-duck politician, as my mom called him, were used on many a hot night to humbly hold the door open for the constituents he had fleeced for so many years. Do Dr. Joe's kids want the ashes, I asked. Yes, Mom replied, they are fighting over the estate. It's sizable. Both children have lawyers. The daughter was adopted, and the son is claiming that she isn't entitled to anything. It's gotten pretty petty. Now both lawyers are claiming the ashes right away. So that's what Judge O'Sullivan was talking to you about? Yes, he sent me a copy of a court order. She pulled a blue-backed legal document from her nearby knitting basket and handed it to me. I guess it says I'm to give the ashes over to the court. 
As I read the order, I nodded in agreement. Yep, that's it. So what's so hot about that? She didn't answer directly. Instead, she put down her teacup, looked out the kitchen bay window dreamily, and said, Clara looked so beautiful in the casket in her peach dress, her hair done the way she liked it, her good pearls. She started to sniffle while speaking. Well, they waited for each other a very long time in full grace, so I'm sure they're together in heaven, I volunteered. She blushed and with a tight smile played around the corners of her mouth. I helped things a little, she murmured. Help things, I asked. An unsettling chill slid down my spine. She looked straight at me and said, when all the mourners had gone, the men were loading them into the limits to go to church. I went back to say a last goodbye to Clara before they came back to close the casket. I was all alone with her having a good cry when suddenly I remembered Dr. Joe's ashes in the closet. So, so... So she spoke rapidly. I pried off the top of the canister with those pliers we keep in that closet and poured all of Dr. Joe's ashes onto Clara's lap and into the satin lining of the casket. A voice rose with pride as she finished. A warm glow surged through me. You mean, a smile cut me off, Mike, Clara, and Dr. Joe are finally joined together in eternity. And I'm so happy for them that I just want to burst with joy when I think of it. I know that legally I had no right to disturb those ashes. Tears of happiness rolled down her freckled face. And now I'm in trouble. The court wants the ashes. What should I do? I kneeled next to her chair and hugged her and comforted her. She didn't see the tears of pride in the corners of my eyes. My mind raced as I searched for an answer. Mom, I talked quietly over her shoulder while still holding her. The law is very hard in ways, but it tries to be responsive to our human needs and desires. We know, and I'm sure Judge O'Sullivan would agree, if he knew that you were right that Dr. Joe would have wanted to be with Clara. You did something beautiful. She broke away for a moment to dab her nose and eyes with the tissue. I stayed close to her and started to speak, but she blurted, He knows, and started to cry again. What? He knows, she repeated. Judge O'Sullivan knows what you did? She nodded. He's an old friend. We buried his mother and father. He knew Dr. Joe and Clara. They were close. I couldn't lie to him. I plopped down in the kitchen chair. Wow, was all I could manage. He said to talk to you, she continued. He knows you're a lawyer. What else did he say? Not much. He was silent when I told him. I think he almost cried. His voice broke, sort of. He said to talk to you, and oh yes, to tell you to get a canister of ashes with Dr. Joe's name on it to his court clerk. 
That's exactly what he said. Get a canister of ashes with Dr. Joe's name on it? Yes. She just nodded and sniffled. I sipped my tea and smiled. The kitchen was quiet except for the ticking of the grandfather clock in the hallway. I headed for the hall closet. And what a story, and thanks to Tom Ryan. And again, he's a 95-year-old listener on KABC in Los Angeles. And thank you, Tom. And there are more to come from him, actually, because, well, that's not an accident what you just heard, folks. What a voice. What a story. And my goodness, there was a time. I mean, imagine that. The Catholic Church wouldn't annul that wedding. And so these two just could never live together. They just couldn't live together. They always thought they'd marry, but things were so strict. So, so strict. The mom said that. Clara passed away, and soon thereafter, Joe did. And that happened so often, folks, in life. We've seen it happen time and again in stories we tell. June Cash died, and Johnny Cash died not soon thereafter. And George Bush and Barbara Bush, look at how quickly that happened. And so it is when you lose that loved one for all those years. Well, the party just wants to join him. And my goodness, the way Tom's mom handled things. I broke the law. And I'm so glad I did. And sometimes, you know, folks, the rules don't make any sense. And that's a hard thing to teach your kids because you got to teach them to follow the rules, except when they shouldn't, right? Except when they shouldn't. And we want to hear your stories, any kind, love stories, inspirational stories, any kind at all, courage, faith. Hope, love, these are the things we write about a lot and talk about here on this show. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Tom Ryan's story and his mom's story about Joe and Clara. All of their stories together here on Our American Stories. we continue here with our American stories and this next story comes from a listener in Los Angeles Joe Garibaldi and before there was a kin there was this man and Greg Hengler is about to bring us the story of Chef Boyardee whom Joe told us in his email putting us on to this great story that he last saw Chef Boyardee at his own grandmother's funeral Back in Cleveland in the 1960s, here's Greg with the story of Chef Boyardee. Chef Boyardee is one of the most familiar figures in the supermarket aisles, but you may be surprised to know that the smiling, mustachioed character in the white apron and towering chef's hat wasn't some corporate marketing concoction like Betty Crocker, Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben. The man who graces cans of beef aroni and spaghetti and meatballs, Hector Boyardee, 
was a real person, and yes, that's his real picture. Here he is in a 1953 television commercial. Hello, may I come in? I am Chef Boyardi. Perhaps you have seen my picture on Chef Boyardi products at your grocers. Born in 1897 in the northern Italian region of Piazienza, Boyardi supposedly used a wire whisk for a rattle and by the age of 11 was working as an apprentice chef at a local hotel. In 1914, 16-year-old Boyardi set sail for a new life with better opportunities in America and arrived at Ellis Island. He entered the kitchen at New York City's prestigious Plaza Hotel, where his older brother Paul was a maitre d', and within a year, at just 17 years of age, he assumed the position of head chef. So talented was Boyardi that he directed the catering for the wedding reception of President Woodrow Wilson and his second wife, Edith, that same year. Two years later, the chef moved to Cleveland to run the kitchen at the Hotel Winton, and in 1924, Boyardi opened a restaurant of his own with his newlywed wife, Helen. Chef Boyardi's grandniece is Anna Boyardi. She's a TV producer and cookware designer who took on the role of family historian when she published Delicious Memories, Recipes, and Stories from the Chef Boyardee family in 2011. Here's Anna and cookbook author Nathan Mirvold. My name is Anna Boyardee, B-O-I-A-R-D-I. <laughs> Chef Boyardee was a real person. Um, the man that you know on the can is Chef Boyardee was my great uncle. Boyardi was a food revolutionary because he made it possible for people that could never have gotten to his restaurant, wouldn't have cooked uh, a pasta sauce themselves, but they could buy a can of it. The company was actually founded by my grandfather and my two great uncles. Italian food in the 20s was not as common as it is today. People were always asking, well, how do I make this at home? And they would give customers some pasta to take home and a little tomato sauce and give them a little cheese and explain how to properly cook the pasta. Everyone thought it was great. And they decided that they are going to start canning their tomato sauce and selling it in supermarkets across America. Boyardi recognized this business opportunity when his takeout revenue began to eclipse the dine-in revenue. A couple of the chef's regular patrons who owned a local grocery store chain helped him design a canning process and find a national distributor. To meet the growing demand, Boyardi and his brothers built a small processing plant and launched Chef Boyardi's food company in 1928. The company's first product was a pre-packaged spaghetti dinner in a cardboard carton. Today I want to tell you about a wonderful dinner for three. A dinner that only cost about 15 cents a serving. It's my own Chef Boyari spaghetti dinner with meat sauce or mushroom sauce. It all comes in one carton. A full half pound of tender, quick cooking spaghetti, 10 full ounces of rich, tasty sauce, and to top it off, a whole can of zippy grated cheese. A wonderful food. The product sold well, but Boyardi soon discovered a problem. His American customers and salesmen struggled with the pronunciation of his last name. So the chef decided to change it to the phonetic Boyardee. Boyardee said, everyone is proud of his own family name. 
but sacrifices were necessary for progress. The company's low-cost but tasty meals became popular during the Depression and helped to make Italian food a mainstay in the United States. But it wasn't the chef's sauce that made Boyardee the household name that it is today. We can thank the U.S. military for that. Here's food historian Jack Turner and Anna Boyardee. We are going to win this war. World War II was a hugely significant event in the food chain because these ration packs, all of these processed foods were, if you like, developed to meet a need, to meet a need of armies that were far away that needed to be fed. At the beginning of World War II, Chef Boyardee is granted the commission to produce rations. All of what's considered civilian production, so that supermarket production, is halted, and the factory is converted to aid in the war effort and is now running 24 hours a day. By the end of the war, Chef Boyardee had become the largest supplier of rations to the U.S. and Allied forces. He was awarded the Gold Star Order of Excellence from the United States War Department, one of the highest honors a civilian can receive in honor of the company's wartime efforts. But the question was now, without the demand, what were they going to do with their supply, their workforce, and their massive factories? Chef Boyardee made the difficult decision to sell the company in 1946 to the American Home Products conglomerate for nearly $6 million. Here's food historian Andrew F. Smith and Jack Turner. Chef Boyardee puts the spaghetti and meatballs together and puts them in a can. It's a picture of it on the outside of this. Here's this professional saying, you can serve this in your home, and it becomes one of the more successful products that are made in America. Chin chin. It's a great story. After the war, the sort of main arguments, if you like, of the food industry was that all you needed to do was open a can. Cooking was for the past. Boyardi remained a consultant with the company until 1978 and continued to appear in advertisements. In fact, Boyardi became one of the first celebrity chefs to appear in print advertisement and television commercials. And with no artificial flavors, colors, or preservatives in the classic pasta dishes such as beef ravioli and lasagna, Chef Boyardi is a meal you can serve with the same pride that the chef did in World War II. So ask your grocer for Chef Boyardi's spaghetti dinner with meat or mushroom sauce, won't you? And look for other Chef Boyardi's products. They're also delicious, they're also nourishing, and they help keep the cost of your meals down. Chef Boyardi's products are at Best Grocer. Ask for Chef Boyardi's spaghetti dinner. Only about 15 cents a serving. The chef died of natural causes on June 21st, 1985, at the age of 87. Today... Chef Boyardee defines Italian cooking in America, so much so that Italian food hardly registers as ethnic cuisine for most Americans. Hector Boyardee was a big part of that, and on supermarket shelves around the world, his smiling face lives on. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always to Greg Hengler, and thanks to Joe Garibaldi, a listener of ours in Los Angeles. By the way, if you have a story for us like this one, please send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We love them and we'll do them, as you just heard. And my goodness, we learned a lot about, well, somebody we didn't even know actually really existed. 
and indeed Chef Boyardee did, a couple of big ones. He changed his name, really smart. Ralph Lipschitz changed his name too. He became Ralph Lauren, and we did that story, and I think you'll love it. He also helped popularize Italian food, but how he did it was helping our boys, feeding our boys in World War II. He won a gold star order of excellence, being one of the largest suppliers in the war effort in World War II. Chef Boyardee's story, here on Our American Story. Cooking, gonna cook me some lunch, yeah. Cause I got a hunch, girl, that you're hungry too. And we continue with Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Rule of Law series, where we bring you stories about what happens when the rule of law is either present or absent in our lives. And here's Alex Cortez with today's story. Harvey Silverglade is one of the top lawyers in America whose mission is to protect our constitutional freedoms, and he's the author of Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent. One of the major differences between state and federal criminal justice systems is this. Most state systems follow the common law rule. This is an ancient, inherited from the British, ancient system that says as follows. In order to be convicted of a crime, you have to be shown not only to have violated the statute, but you have to be shown to have intentionally and knowingly, there are the words, intentionally and knowingly, violated a known legal obligation. What this means is the prosecutor has to prove to the jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant acted with an intent to break the law. And that is a protection that was built into the Anglo-American legal system. It has been around in Britain for centuries. It's been around in this country since the founding. But the federal system is different. In the federal system, you don't have to be shown to have understood the law. You have to have been shown to engage in the conduct you engaged in knowingly and intentionally. But of course, that's true of everything that we do except maybe what we do in our sleep. But it doesn't matter whether you thought you were doing something lawful. And that's how the feds are able to get so many people convicted. Whereas in the state, you actually have to have been shown had criminal intent. That difference between the state systems is the reason I did not write a book about innocent people getting convicted in the state system. Some innocent people do get convicted, but it's typically because the jury believes government witnesses rather than defense witnesses. Did you rape this person? No, not rape this person. But you have witnesses that you did rape this person. Did you commit the bank robbery? No. Either the teller gets believed or you get believed. But it's obvious that rape is a crime. It's obvious that bank robbery is a crime. It's obvious that arson is a crime. But in the federal system, 
All that has to be proven is that you did what you did and you did it knowingly and intentionally. It does not have to be shown that you should have understood or you did understand that what you were doing was a crime. And that's how they convict so many people who thought that they were acting perfectly innocently. And that's where I get my subtitle of how the feds target the innocent. Including a guy named Joseph Edward Morissette. Morissette is a Supreme Court case that every law student studies because it is such a paradigmatic case for the excesses of federal prosecution. Unfortunately, it is honored more in the breach these days. It is not followed, even though it is studied by law students. It's sort of an irony. But Morissette was this fellow who would go through particularly wooded areas, areas which had been used for target practices by the military in particular. And he would collect spent cartridges. The spent cartridges were useful, were valuable for the value of the scrap. But he would go through these areas and he would pick up from the ground lead and other metals that were used for target practice. And he would then sell the metal and he would make a fairly good living doing that. He was indicted because these materials were technically on federal property or technically belonged to the federal government. Mind you, the government was not going to be using them for anything. But Morissette, he was indicted because this was technically government property. The charge against Morissette was that he, quote, did unlawfully, willfully, and knowingly steal property of the United States. And yet, the judge wouldn't let Morissette's lawyer argue that he didn't knowingly steal, that he didn't even know that he was on federal property, and that there was no notice that what looked like abandoned cartridges weren't technically abandoned, even though they actually were. How is that a system of justice, a rule of law, that a defendant can't refute the direct charge against them. But because federal law apparently doesn't care about you not knowing that you did something wrong, I guess a defendant can't make that argument. But sitting here as a non-lawyer normal person, it seems like you shouldn't be able to charge someone for knowingly doing something if the knowing part isn't on the approved list of what can be debated in court. But perhaps the government has a more enlightened version of common sense than we do. The problem, the problem in a case like Morissette, the problem in so many of these federal criminal prosecutions is the jury cannot get the whole story because technically it doesn't matter. If there's something that is not technically, legally a defense, the prosecutor will object to the admission of the evidence and you're not allowed to present it. So juries don't get a full picture of what the defendant did and what his state of mind was. And, and that's, that's because the rules of evidence are so narrow and in some cases so artificial that jurors don't get a full picture. Um, often, 
I think to myself, in the days when I did a lot of jury trials, I think to myself, if only this jury knew what I know, they would be so sympathetic to my client. But they don't end up knowing that much because the rules of evidence only allow the admissibility of technically relevant evidence rather than background information that the juries really should know in order to judge whether or not this defendant really acted in a way that was malicious or had criminal intent. So the system is skewed terribly against the defendant. Federal trials are not meant to paint full and accurate pictures. They're meant to give juries a very narrow, narrowly focused view that is usually the prosecutor's way of looking at what happened and why it's a crime. So that's the reason why the system being so unfair, that's the reason why 97% of defendants, why they're convicted at trial, or much more commonly why they plead guilty and just throw in the towel, even if they don't believe that they've committed a crime. The case made it up to the Supreme Court, which decided the grant review, and he won that case in the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court said that this, this stuff was abandoned. He didn't commit a crime. This was abandoned. It's not theft of government property. And that case is, to me, I had a, a chapter on it in, in three felonies a day because what it demonstrates is how the feds overreach and how they use statutes to convict people who act in perfectly innocent ways. It didn't matter that Morissette had no idea he was committing a crime. It didn't matter to the prosecutors that he did absolutely no harm to anybody. He did not really steal government property. The government abandoned this stuff. And yet, the feds went after him. Why in the world the feds would utilize resources of the Department of Justice to go after a guy like Morissette? You have to ask, you scratch your head. And of course, the answer is that these prosecutors don't have enough useful work to do. They sit around all day to figure out who they can get and how they can get them. And they so often focus on people whose conduct is innocent and who simply violated, arguably violated some statute that no normal human being would have assumed covered the activity in which they engaged. So to me, it is the paradigmatic example of the problem. And Barr said won his case, but it doesn't seem to have stopped the practice that the court dealt with. You were listening to Harvey Silverglate, and he's the author of Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent, and you can buy it at Amazon.com. It's a must-read, because this could be any of us, folks, especially if we work in businesses that have anything to do with a large federal bureaucracy. You are truly committing at least a few crimes a day that you don't know you're committing, and any knock on the door could ruin your life. And again, with no knowledge of committing a crime, how do you charge people with a crime? And I know you're wondering, listening, why didn't the... Why didn't the Fed just tell the guy to stop doing what he was doing and he was on federal land? It's just an obscenity. And by the way, there's an extraordinary bipartisan group of lawmakers 
from Republican Ted Cruz to Democrat Sheila Jackson Lee, who've gotten together to propose a common-sense reform called mens rea, which means guilty mind, and that you should only be charged with a crime if you knew that it was a crime. It's a bedrock of the rule of law in Western civilization, actually, but one that's tragically been missing in the federal justice system. Our rule of law story, the Morissette case, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Stephen Ambrose was one of America's leading biographers and historians. His bestsellers chronicle our nation's critical battles and achievements, from his war works D-Day and Band of Brothers, to undaunted courage. Meriwether Lewis, Thomas Jefferson, and the opening of the American West. Stephen Ambrose passed in 2002, but his epic storytelling accounts can now be heard here at Our American Stories thanks to those who run his estate. Climb aboard, here is Stephen Ambrose to tell us the story from his bestseller, Nothing Like It in the World, The Men Who Built the Transcontinental Railroad. My editor, Alice Mayhew, said when I completed my last book, he said, you got to do the Pacific Railway. How did they build it? And I said, oh, Alice, I don't want to do that. Uh, I, 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 these guys were robber barons. They went out and stole the country blind. And then they used all their ill-gotten gains to get a grip on American politics, which they held on to until the first the populists and then the progressive parties were formed. And I don't want to deal with these robber barons. And she said, you do... You, so I, I read for six months, and I learned that I had been badly wrong. That far from being villains, these guys are heroes. And I'm talking about the big four. I'm talking about Dr. Rant. I'm talking about all the others that were at the top and all of the men who built the track. So that was how I got started on it. This book opens with Abraham Lincoln. And somebody asked me about that a couple of days ago. I said, how could you possibly open with Abraham Lincoln? I said, listen, I'm a writer. You got an opportunity to open your story with Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> but in, in this story, uh, Lincoln was a railroad lawyer before he went into full-time politics. He was involved in the biggest case of all with the Rock Island when they had built a bridge over the Mississippi River and a steamboat crashed into one of the pilings and it burned up and the steamboat company sued the railroad. You can't put those bridges over this river. Our steamboats are going to run into them. Lincoln defended the Rock Island. And, and one thing he did was say it was the pilot's fault. I mean, he crashed into the piling, but second he said the railroads have as much right to go east and west as your steamships have to go north and south. And that principle was accepted by the Illinois Supreme Court, and that's what made railroading in America. Lincoln got written into the 1860 Republican platform, support for the building of a transcontinental railroad. And that was done. 
He was the promoter of the 1862 bill, and then he promoted the 1864 revision, which gave even more subsidies uh, to the railroad, because he wanted to see that railroad built, and he wanted it seen fast. Lincoln was in Council Bluffs, Iowa. It was 1859. And the man he was staying with, his name was Pusey, pointed to a man on the, down the way on the veranda of the hotel, and he said, that's Grenville Dodge. He was 28 years old, Dodge was. And Pusey said to Lincoln, he knows more about railroads than any two men in the country. And that snapped Lincoln's head around. Let's go meet, he said. And you know, those great big long legs of his, he began striding down, and he stuck out that long arm, and he said, Dodge. What's the best route for the Pacific Railroad? And like that, Dodd said, right here, Mr. President, straight out from Omaha, right up the Platte River Valley. Why do you think so, Lincoln asked. And Dodd told him why he thought so. And from that moment on, Lincoln was fully committed to what became the first transcontinental railroad. Next to winning the Civil War and abolishing slavery, Building the first transcontinental railroad from Omaha, Nebraska to Sacramento, California was the greatest achievement of the American people in the 19th century. Not until the completion of the Panama Canal in the early 20th century was it rivaled as an engineering feat. The railroad took brains, muscle, and sweat in quantities and scope never before put into a single project. It could not have been done without a representative, democratic political system. Without skilled and ambitious engineers. Without bosses and foremen who would learn how to organize and lead men in the Civil War. Without free labor. Without hardworking laborers who would learn how to take orders in the war. Without those who came over to America in the thousands from China, seeking a fortune. Without laborers speaking many languages and coming to America from every inhabited continent. Without the trees and iron available in America, without capitalists willing to take high risk for great profit, without men willing to challenge all at every level in order to win all. Most of all, it could not have been done without teamwork. The United States was less than 100 years old when the Civil War was won, slavery abolished, and the first transcontinental railroad built. Not until nearly 20 years later did the Canadian Pacific span the Dominion. It was a quarter of a century after the completion of the railroad, the American road, that the Russians got started on the Trans-Siberian Railway. And the Russians used more than 200,000 Chinese to do it as compared to the American employment of 10,000 or so Chinese. In addition, the Russians had hundreds of thousands of convicts working on the line as slave laborers. Even at that, it was not until 32 years after the American achievement that the Russians finished. And they did it as a government enterprise at a much higher cost with a road that was in every way inferior. The Americans did it first. And they did it even though the United States was the youngest of countries. It had proclaimed its independence in 1776, won its independence in 1783, bought the Louisiana Purchase, through which much of the Union Pacific ran, in 1803, added California and Nevada and Utah to the Union in 1848, through which the Central Pacific ran, and completed the linking of the continent in 1869, thus ensuring an empire of liberty running from sea to shining sea.
And more of Stephen Ambrose's remarkable storytelling on the building of the Transcontinental Railroad here on Our American Story. And we continue here with Our American Stories and Stephen Ambrose telling the story of the men who built the Transcontinental Railroad and his terrific book, Nothing Like It in the World. Go to Amazon.com. And by the way, while you're there, pick up all of Stephen Ambrose's books. Read them with the family. There is no better storytelling about our great country than Stephen Ambrose. Let's continue with the story. One of the most feared stretches ran three miles along the precipitous gorge to the North Fork of the American River, nicknamed Cape Horn. The slope was at an angle of 75 degrees, and the river was 1,200 to 2,200 feet below the line of the railroad. There were no trails, not even a goat path. The grade would not be bored through a tunnel, but rather built on the side of the mountain which required blasting and rock cuts on the sheer cliffs. The mountain needed to be sculpted because the railroad would be curved around the mountain. The curves that hugged the monolith were either upgrade or occasionally down. Men had to be lowered in a bosun's chair from above to place the black powder. First of all, to drill a hole for it, then to place the black powder, fix and light the fuses, and then yell to the man above to haul us up with regard to Cape Horn, Van Nostrand's Engineering Magazine, the premier magazine for engineers of the day, said in 1870, good engineers consider this undertaking preposterous. One day in the summer of 1865, a Chinese foreman went up to Strobridge, who was the foreman for the Central Pacific. The Chinese nodded and then waited for permission to speak. When it was granted, he said that men of China are skilled at work like this. Our ancestors built fortresses in the Yangtze Gorges. Would you permit Chinese crews to work on Cape Horn? If so, could reeds be sent up from San Francisco so we can weave them into baskets? Strowbridge would try anything. The reeds came on. At night, the Chinese wove baskets similar to the ones their ancestors had used. The baskets were round, waist-high, four eyelets at the top, painted with symbols. Ropes ran from the eyelets to a central cable. The Chinese went to work. They needed little or no instruction in handling black powder, which was a Chinese invention. And they went to work with a hauling crew at the top. Hundreds of barrels of black powder were ignited daily to form a ledge on which a roadbed could be laid. Some of the men were lost in accidents. We don't know how many. The CP didn't keep a record. 
The Chinese working men, hanging in their baskets, had to bore the holes with their small hand drills, then tamp in the explosives, set and light the fuse, and holler to be pulled out of the way. They used a huge amount of power that was shipped to them from Sacramento. The Chinese made the roadbed and laid the track around Cape Horn. Though this took until the spring of 1866 a year, it was not as time-consuming or difficult as had been feared. Still, it remains one of the best known of all the laborers on the Central Pacific. Mainly because, unlike the work in the tunnel, it makes for a spectacular diorama. As well it should. Hanging from those baskets, drilling holes in the cliff, putting in the powder, placing the fuse, and getting hauled up was a spectacular piece of work. The white laborers couldn't do it. The Chinese could. If not as a matter of course, then quickly. And, at least they made it look this way, easily. <coughs> Young Lewis Clement did the surveying and then took charge of overseeing the railroad engineering at Cape Horn. What Clement planned and the Chinese made became one of the grandest sights to be seen along the entire Central Pacific Line. Trains would halt there so tourists could get out from their cars to gasp and gape at the gorge and at the grade. In the fall of 1865, the CP went to work on its tunnels. Now, you, you need to know that California has on its eastern side the Sierra Nevada. That is granite, and it goes up very high, and you get more snow on the Sierra Nevada than you do any place else in the United States, save only Alaska. And the tunnels had to be drilled through this granite. And in the fall of 1865, the CP went to work on these tunnels. Six of the 13 that would have to blast out before getting to the east slope were clustered in a small stretch of two miles at the top of the long climb. The biggest, number six, right at the summit, within a few hundred feet of Donner Pass, with Donner Lake right down below it, was 1,659 feet long and as much as 124 feet beneath the surface. Of all the back-breaking labor that went into the building of the CP and the UP, of all the dangers inherent in the work, this was the worst. The drills lost their edges to the granite and had to be replaced frequently. One Chinese worker would hold that drill up and then there were two men behind him with sledgehammers and the other guy and the other guy and that went on for eight hours <clears throat> there was room for only one gang at a time three men to a gang the drills lost their edge to the granite and had to be replaced frequently the CP soon learned to order his drills in 100 ton lots the man holding the drill had to be steady or he would get hit by the sledgehammer. The man swinging the hammer had to have muscles like steel. When a hole was at last big enough for the black powder to be packed in, the crew would fill it, set a fuse, yell as loud as they could while running out of the range of the blast, and they would hope. Sometimes the fuse worked. Sometimes it didn't. Often the workers had put in too much powder, and most of it blew toward them harmlessly as far as the granite was concerned, but a great danger to the Chinese.
Clement's assistant, Henry Root, explained that more powder was used by the rock foreman than was economical for the simple reason that the workers were told that time, not money, was of the essence. At Summit Tunnel alone, 300 kegs of blasting powder a day went up. That's more than went up in a day in the Civil War. Progress was incredibly slow, with men working round the clock. This is 24 hours a day, eight hours, eight hours, and eight hours. Between six and 12 inches was a normal 24-hour day of how much they gained. Charlie Crocker, in charge, gave orders to establish permanent work camps on each side of the summit to facilitate the round-the-clock drilling, blasting, scraping, shoveling, and hauling by the Chinese. Charlie figured there was no night or day within a tunnel. The men worked in groups of 20 or so because only a handful could work at any one time. They ate healthy well-cooked and tasty food. Unlike the white workers <coughs> on the Union Pacific, the Central Pacific provided, as did the Union Pacific, the Americans with boiled beef and potatoes, and that's all they wanted, and some salt. Uh, the Chinese demanded and got an astonishing variety. Oysters, cuttlefish, finfish, abalone meat, oriental fruits, and scores of vegetables, including bamboo sprouts, seaweed, and mushrooms. Each of these foods came dried, purchased from one of the Chinese merchants in San Francisco. Further, the Chinese ate rice, salted cabbage, vermiculi, bacon, and sweet crackers. Very occasionally, they had fresh meat, pork being a prime favorite, along with chicken. That food helped keep the Chinese healthy. The water they drank was even more important. The Americans drank from the streams and lakes, and many of them got diarrhea, dysentery, and other illnesses. The Chinese drank only tepid tea. The water had been boiled first and was brought to them by youngsters who carried two pails on a sturdy pole across their shoulders, and they would dip in and drink their tea. What remarkable storytelling, painting word pictures like no one else can. More black powder used in a day of construction of the Transcontinental Railroad than used in a day of battle in the Civil War. And they ordered drills in 100-ton lots. And by the way, America could do this because we could produce those drills in 100-ton lots. And what a great story about, well, immigration in the end. The white laborers couldn't do it. Ambrose said, referring to building these railroads. <laughs> the Chinese workers could. And by the way, it's always been our American advantage. Disparate cultures, disparate knowledge, organized around a common set of governing values. When we come back, more of this remarkable story. Stephen Ambrose, nothing like it in the world, the men who built the Transcontinental Railroad. This is Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories, and let's return 
to Stephen Ambrose telling the story of the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. According to contemporaries, the white worker had a hydrophobia, which induced him to avoid any contact with water. In contrast, the Chinese are accustomed to daily evolutions of their entire person. The Chinese were ideal workers. Cheap. Three dollars a day. They did as they were told. Made a quick study and after something was shown or explained to them, did it skillfully. Few, if any, strikes. The same for complaints. They did what no one else was willing or able to do. When Charlie Crocker first proposed to Strawberry, let's use Chinese, because they were getting white workers who would sign up and then get a ride up to the top of the Sierra Nevada and then desert, because they, they just wanted a free ride out to the gold fields. The Chinese didn't, and didn't do it that way, and Crocker said to Strawberry, let's try Chinese, and Strawberry said, you're crazy. They're only that high, and they only weigh 110 pounds, they can't possibly do this work. And Crocker said, they built the Great Wall of China, didn't they? <laughs> And Strawberry soon became one of their great advocates. <coughs> now to the men who made the Union Pacific, who were primarily Irishmen, uh, although the myth has it it was exclusively, and it wasn't. There were German descendants, and there were Scandinavians, and there were Italians, and there were Russian descendants, and there were a, a quite a lot, 500 by my own count, African Americans, newly freed slaves. The whole world worked on the Union Pacific. But the Irishmen made up maybe 50%. Another factor here is they were almost all of them veterans. They were 18 or 19 or 20 or 21 years old. They had been in the Civil War, whether in the Confederate Army or the Union Army. You look at pictures of them, very famous pictures, and you're going to see a lot of gray coats and a lot of blue coats. And these were kids who the war was over, and they, I ain't going to go back to Indiana and plow. I'm, I'm not going to go back to Ohio and get behind a horse and hold that plow all day long, falling behind that. I want something more exciting in my life. I want something that is significant. I want to be a part of something big. In addition, they had caught that most American of all diseases, the wanderlust. They wanted to see new country. And they signed on with the Union Pacific to go to work, to build something that they knew and they did they could bring their grandchildren to and say I helped build that and, and, and General Dodge who uh, he wasn't general anymore he, he had been in the Civil War but he was uh, superintendent and head of construction and the chief engineer for the Union Pacific he said it was the best organized best equipped and best disciplined workforce I have ever seen and Dodge built a lot of railroads and they were being attacked by Indians and pretty much constantly when they were in Nebraska and more occasionally but still fairly often when they were in Wyoming and the Indians had a number of objections to the building of this road. First of all, it was going through their land. Nobody had asked them and nobody had ever paid them and, and, and second, they knew it was bringing civilization and that meant first of all, army post and that meant that they could no longer outrun the army that a regiment could get on a train and go all the way out to Cheyenne or go on to Rollins or wherever in Wyoming and disembark from the train and boom, they could hit the Indians just like that. And the Indians were aware of that. They were also aware that these settlements were going to come. And that spelled a doom for the Indian way of life.
And most of all, the Indians were aware Buffalo would not cross the track. So the laying of the track across the Great Plains meant you're splitting the buffalo herd in half. So they attacked often, and sometimes with some effect, and sometimes with great effect, because they would uh, pry up the track in the middle of the night, and the locomotive would come through, and the engineer wouldn't see this in the dark, and whoop, over it went. And then the Indians would attack, and they would take everything they could out of the cars, and especially if they could find some whiskey, and that became very notorious at Julesburg in Colorado. Now, one of the ways that the railroad got control over that was they learned to hang lanterns on the front of the locomotives, and that provided a spotlight. So you could at least see ahead and see if the track had been torn up or not. But Dodge had all of these young men, 10,000 of them, that were working for the Union Pacific. They were all armed. And their foremen had all been officers in the Civil War. And they would see a hostile Indian force up on the ridge, getting ready to come down on them, and boom, like that. Those guys would switch from being railway workers to being soldiers. And they would grab their rifles and they would line up and they would repel these Indian attacks. How hard they worked is an astonishment to us at the beginning of the 21st century. Except for some of the cooks and bakers, there was not a fat man among them. Their hands were tough enough for any job. One never sees gloves in the photographs. The jobs included pickaxe handling, shoveling, wielding sledgehammers, picking up iron rails, and using other equipment that required hands like iron. Their waists were generally thin, but oh, those shoulders, those arms, those legs. Nebraska can be hotter than hell, colder than the South Pole. They kept on working. They didn't whine. They didn't complain. They didn't quit. They just kept working. They had taken on a job that is accurately described as back-breaking. It was, in addition, a job that experts said could not be done in the 10 years it had been allotted, if ever. A day's routine was something like this. In the morning, the men were up at first light. After their toilet and washing their faces and hands in a tin basin, they had a hearty breakfast and then went to work. At noon time, it was called and they had an hour for a heavy dinner that included pitchers of steaming coffee, pans of beef soup, platters heaped with boiled beef, potatoes, sometimes condensed milk diluted with water. The men were there to eat. There was little conversation. They made a business of it. Afterward, they sat around their bunks, smoking, sewing on buttons, or taking a little nap, then back to work with the bosses cursing and exhorting them to overcome their noontime lassitude. Time was called again an hour before dark to allow some rest. The evening meal was more leisurely. Then to the bunkhouses for card games, a smoke, lots of talk, railroad talk. It was said to consist entirely of whiskey, women, higher wages, shorter hours. Sometimes the men protested about being cheated. When they did, they were shot. <laughs> One a day or more. There was no law. 
And then a song, such as Poor Patty, He Works on the Railroad, or The Great Pacific Railway for California Hail. Then to bed, the whole to be repeated the next day, and the next, and the next. And what storytelling by the great Stephen Ambrose, and we thank his estate for allowing us to use his voice and to keep his work alive at a time when fewer and fewer people know the story of this great country. Hearing Stephen Ambrose tell these stories, well, it's more than a breath of fresh air. It's life itself. It's sustenance. And by the way, this story of the Union Pacific, of the Irish, 50% of the Irish dominated this and these crews, and almost all were vets, as he pointed out. They didn't want to go back to the farm, Ambrose pointed out, after the war, and some fought for the North and some fought for the South. They wanted to be a part of something big. They wanted to see a new country built. And they also wanted to be able to bring their grandchildren to the finished product and say, I helped build that. And then again, let's never forget the wanderlust. Just wanting to get out and see someplace new, which is still a fundamental part of this great country. By the way, there's a story to tell about the Sandhogs and those of the Irish who built all the tunnels in New York City, built the subways, and by the way, other immigrants too, but the Irish dominated this space. When we come back, more of this remarkable story the building of the transcontinental railroads and Stephen Ambrose here on Our American Story. And we continue here on Our American Stories. Let's pick up where Stephen Ambrose last left off. During the spring of 1866, Jack Caseman, in charge of one of the construction crews, offered each man a pound of fresh tobacco for every day that they laid more than two miles of track. This was done. Dan Casement went out in the early summer to offer time and a half pay to ensure that the UP reached the 100th meridian before any other line. He also offered double wages for any four-mile workdays. Henry Morton Stanley, who was one of the many reporters who was out there covering this, and Henry Morton Stanley is a reporter who found Dr. Liv Dr. Livingston, I presume. Um, and he was reporting for two American papers. He was impressed by the results. The workers, he said, display an astonishing amount of enthusiasm for their jobs. <clears throat> the workers on the CP, from the bosses down, believed there was more rain and snow in the winter of 1865-66 than had ever before been seen in California. The winter of 1866-67 was much worse. The snow came early and stayed late. There were 44 separate storms. Some of them deposited 10 feet of snow, some deposited more. At the summit, the pack averaged 18 feet on the level. More, fall, more snow falls on the Sierra Nevada than any place else in the 48 states. Only Alaska gets more snow than the Sierra Nevada. <clears throat> Strawbridge put hundreds of the Chinese to work doing nothing but shoveling the snow away to keep open a cart trail to the tunnel opening. If it had not been for the race with the UP, the CP would have closed down that winter. But the fear of losing all Utah and Nevada to their rival drove them on. 
The Chinese labor has dug snow tunnels from 50 to 500 feet long to get to the granite tunnels. And they lived in these igloos is what they were. And these Chinese for sometimes as long as six months never once saw the sky. Some of these uh, tunnels were large enough for a team of horses to walk through. Windows were dug out of the snow walls to dump refuse and let in a little bit of light. Also chimneys and air shafts. But for the most part, the Chinese worked, ate, drank their tea, gambled, smoked opium, which they did on Sundays. They got Sundays off and they smoked opium. <coughs> they didn't get themselves intoxicated with it or act silly or anything like that. They just wanted to relax on that day off. So they smoked their opium and slept in the remarkable labyrinth that they were building under the snow. This was cruel work, dangerous and claustrophobic. Still, they pressed on, drilling the holes in the granite, placing the black powder and then the fuse, lighting the fuse, getting out of the way, then going back in to clear out the broken granite. Of all the things done by the first transcontinental railroad, nothing exceeded the cuts in time and cost it made for people traveling across the continent. Before the Mexican War, during the gold rush that started in 1848 through the 1850s and, and until after the Civil War ended in 1865, it took a person half a year and might cost well over $1,000 to go from New York to San Francisco. They either went overland in the covered wagons with the oxen drawing them or they sailed down to Panama, got across Panama, very great peril, the fear of getting tropical diseases, and then hoped to hell they could find a steamer going north to take them up to California, or they went all the way around South America and came back up again. And then that, that's months and big money. But less than a week after the pounding of the Golden Spike, a man or woman could go from New York to San Francisco in seven days. That included stops. So fast they used to say, you don't even have time to take a bath. <laughs> and the cost to go from New York to San Francisco as listed in the summer of 1869 was $150 for first class, $70 for immigrant. By June 1870, that was down to $100 for first class, 65 for immigrant class. This was at a time when a common laborer was making about $100 a month. And first class meant a Pullman sleeping car. The immigrants sat on a bench. Freight rates by train were incredibly less than for ox or horse-drawn wagons or for sailboats or steamers. Mail that once cost dollars per ounce and took forever, now cost pennies. And got from Chicago to California in a few days. The telegraph, meanwhile, which was built beside the track, as was stipulated in the 1862 Pacific Railway Act, and which, pause for a minute and talk about the telegraph, we like to think we live in the age of the greatest change ever. My parents thought we lived through the biggest change. We lived through the Depression, and then we went through the Second World War, and we defeated Hitler, and we defeated Tojo, and we were there when the atomic bomb came about, and we went through the biggest change. And my grandparents, they felt we went through the biggest change. We were there when Henry Ford brought out the automobile. We were there when the Wright brothers flew for the first time. And obviously, our generation. You know who went through the biggest change? 
the generation that lived between 1850 and 1870. They won the Civil War, they abolished slavery, and they built the Transcontinental Railroad. And in the building of that railroad, they brought in the telegraph. We think we are in instant communication today. The telegraph puts you in instant communication. You could get a message from Chicago to San Francisco or from Los Angeles to New York or wherever like that. That's what made the National Stock Exchange possible and so much else in American business that came about because of that telegraph. So the telegraph, meanwhile, could move ideas, thoughts, statistics, any words or numbers that could be put on paper from one place to another, from Europe or England or New York to San Francisco or anywhere else that had a telegraph station instantly. The Pullman Company published a weekly newspaper called the Transcontinental for its passengers. On May 30, 1870, that's almost exactly one year after the Golden Spike, the paper had this item. It was a cheering incident in our smoking car last evening when one of our party who had telegraphed to Boston to learn if his wife was well received after we had run 47 miles further west this answer, all well at home, which fact was announced and loud applause followed from all in the car. Just imagine that. It's almost like a telephone. But nobody ever did that before. And now you could find out how your wife was when you're way the hell out past Salt Lake. Together, the Transcontinental Railroad and the Telegraph made modern America possible. Things that could not be imagined before the Civil War now became common. A nationwide stock market, a continent-wide economy, in which people, agricultural products, coal and minerals moved wherever someone wanted to send them and did so cheaply and quickly. A continent-wide culture in which mail and popular magazines and books that used to cost dollars per ounce and had taken seemingly forever to get from the east to the west coast now cost pennies and got there in a few days. There's another factor here that I should have, I should mention, and that's time. The railroads changed so much, and one of the things that they changed was time. Before the railroads, nobody carried a watch around. Nobody cared what time it was. And you want to know when it's high noon, you look up in the sky. And when the sun is straight overhead, it's high noon. Now, that's going to be different in Chicago than it's going to come later when you get out to Des Moines. And in Des Moines, it's going to come earlier than it's going to come in Omaha, and so on. But if you're going to have, it's only one track, remember, that they laid. If you're going to have trains going in both directions, and you don't have the same time in Cheyenne as you do in Omaha, they're going to cry. And so that's where standard time came from. The, the uh, um, railroads demanded standard time, and the Congress put in a standard time in 1879. And then we all suddenly became obsessed with time, as we still are. Time's up. Time's wasting. The train is leaving the station. And so on. None of this might have happened if different choices had been made by any of the foregoing groups and individuals. But a choice made is made. It cannot be changed. Things happen as they happen. It's possible to imagine all kinds of different routes across the continent or a better way for the government to help private industry, or maybe to have the government build and own it. 
But those things didn't happen. And what did take place is grand. So we admire those who did it for what they were and what they accomplished and how much each of us owes them. And what storytelling. And thanks again to the Stephen Ambrose estate for allowing us to use his voice. We're deeply appreciative, as I'm sure you are, the listening audience. And by the way, nothing like it in the world. The Men Who Built the Transcontinental Railroad is a terrific read, as are all of Ambrose's books. And we're going to be doing much more storytelling. Well, actually, we're going to be listening to much more storytelling from the great Stephen Ambrose. And boy, what points he makes. We always think... We're living through these great eras of change, but my goodness, 1850 to 1870, we won the Civil War, he reminded us, we freed the slaves, and we created the Transcontinental Railroad, and then the Telegraph, and life was never the same. By the way, the way we were able to lower costs on absolutely everything and make things, well, that weren't even available to kings before, available to the common man. And this is the miracle of free enterprise and the miracle of American innovation and crazy ideas is in the end so many of our great inventors, well, everybody just thought they were crazy. Stephen Ambrose telling the story of the Transcontinental Railroad here on Our American Stories.